If you want to be published by a traditional publishing house, you need a literary agent. Without one, you'll get gobbled alive. <laughs> I can tell you stories of poor authors that I've seen really take advantage of by publishing houses if they didn't have a literary agent. But you probably already know that. You probably already know that you need a literary agent. You've heard it from everyone. <laughs> this is common knowledge. But the real question is, where do you get a literary agent? How do you tell if an agent is a good or bad fit for you and for your book? Well, that is what we're going to talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Sumstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living with writing worth talking about. And this episode is for unpublished traditional authors primarily. If you know for sure you want to be independently published, you're welcome to keep listening, but we're going to be very traditional publishing focus in this episode. And we have a very special guest on the show today. It's going to help us navigate the world of getting a literary agent. She's a common guest on the podcast. You've heard her voice before. She is the author of over 45 books and a literary agent herself of her very own literary agency. And she loves to help people heal from the past through her writing, her podcast, and her art. Mary DeMuth, welcome back to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Hey, it's so good to be here. And it's fun to be here in my role as a literary agent. And I can't wait to have our discussion today. That's right, because you've been here talking about crowdfunding. We did the course on crowdfunding together, and you've been here talking about book launching. The early versions of the book launch blueprint mm -hmm. featured Mary DeMuth, and now you're here as a literary agent. And I will say, one: I'll give one pro tip on agents right now. If you're looking for an agent, a really good kind of agent to look for is somebody like Mary, who's been in the industry for a long time and is just getting started as a literary agent. Agents who've been agents for a long time, when you pitch them, they're basically having to decide which of my current clients do I need to fire to make room for you, <laughs> which is a harder sell, <laughs> whereas a, a newer agent still has open slots. So you're not trying to kick somebody off the team. You're just looking for one of those open slots. But for some people, they've heard me throw this phrase around literary agent quite a few times. We probably should explain what one is, though. So what is a literary agent and what do they do? A literary agent is basically like a real estate agent. They only get paid when they find you a home or place a project. They are a go-between between you and all of the traditional publishers that you're longing to be recognized by. The only way that you can get around a literary agent is if you're traditionally publishing with a very, very small house, or you've gone to a writer's conference and you have pitched directly to an editor and they say, I want your book proposal. And then you just negotiate from there. But most authors who are in the traditional space, like 95% of them, it's not scientific, but I'm guessing at least 95% of them are represented by a literary agent because agents can get you better advances. They can get you better percentages and they can advocate for you in what historically has been an adversarial relationship between author and publisher. And the agent becomes the go-between and the bad guy on your behalf to help you with various problems that you might have in the publishing process. 
Yeah, I like to think of literary agents as like part union representative and part lawyer. <laughs> because yes. part of what gives an agent power is that they don't just represent you, they represent the other authors. And so publishers, acquisitions editors don't want to antagonize literary agents because a good relationship with a literary agent means that they get first dibs on good books or dibs at all. One big thing that an agent does is out of the hundreds of publishing companies, which ones do we pitch? And so if a publisher antagonizes a literary agent and they don't even get the opportunity to bid on a book, that hurts their ability to get great books. And so knowing that, they treat you better if you have a literary agent. And some publishing houses actually have two different boilerplate contracts, Mm -hmm. one for agented authors and one for unagented authors. And so there's all of these basically built-in concessions <laughs> in the in the agented offer contract that is really good to get. And also there's lots of technical details that if you don't know your way around a contract, it's nice to have somebody who understands what those terms mean. Somebody who knows the difference between first rights and second rights, for instance. Yes, very important. All those things. Thomas, you're hired. <laughs> but wait, you so, were one for a while. <laughs> I was. I was a literary agent for a time. I didn't enjoy being a literary agent. I'll tell you why. Being a literary agent means being the middleman where most of what you do as a job is dealing with email, email from authors and email from publishers. (laughs) And I made a key discovery about myself. I really hate spending all day in my inbox. It was like, this is awful. I hate this. So I stopped being a literary agent pretty quickly. Uh, But I do believe that if you're going to go traditional, which I don't think most people do or need to do, but if you are going to go the traditional path, if you can't get a literary agent and a good publisher, I think you're better off going indie. So we talked about what an agent does. What should somebody look for in an agent? Because anybody can call themselves an agent and some agents are fake. In fact, I'll give you an example. I just got a paper letter from an author who has us confused with another company with a similar name. And she has become under the influence of a scam artist who is presenting himself as a literary agent. She put his name in the letter. So I'm like Googling him, trying to find him, see if he's legit, not even a website. I'm like, oh my goodness, this poor lady has been snookered. Somebody presenting themselves as a literary agent has gotten her into a hybrid publishing contract with some shady company, probably Author Solutions, because they sound like Author Media. It's just probably how she came my way. And I'm like, so sad for her. And I'm, I'm going to reach out to her and be like, hey, you need to stop writing checks right now because you're getting bamboozled by a con artist. So how does somebody tell the difference between a con artist and a legit literary agent? Well, I actually experienced that recently, too, where someone self-published via a well-known imprint, so to speak, imprint of a large publishing house that's a self-publishing arm. And so now what those... Was it Westbow? Because that's all their <laughs> solutions. It's the same evil company. <laughs> yes, it's the same one. And We're going to so name now... names here if it's all their solutions because I'm tired of being confused with those people. <laughs> yes. Okay, so this is what happened. And I think this is what's happening is that Westbow is selling their author list to fake agents. And so this person came to me at a writer's conference and said, this seems kind of shady and this agent wants to represent me because of my awesome, really great book. And I was like, okay, first of all, where are you published? Then I found that I'm like, okay, this is fishy. Second of all, how many books have you sold? And it was like 300 books. I was like, okay, first of all, (laughs) no agent in their right mind would ever pursue 
an author who's only moved 300 copies. So it's not true. And then the other thing was, I said, are they asking you to pay money? Oh, well, it's only a couple thousand dollars. I'm like, illegitimate. (laughs) It's not (laughs) a real agent only gets paid when they place a project, just like a real estate agent. And so if they ever ask you for funds for anything, run 1000 miles away. That is a scam, scam, scam. And the term agent is actually a business term I remember from my business law degree. They're working on your behalf. And part of what makes them work on your behalf where there's no conflict of interest is that they get a cut of what you make. And so the more money they're able to get you, the bigger of an advance you get, the bigger of an advance they get, which is motivating for both of you. And it's one of the nice things in this industry that there's at least that's this one kind of clear delineation. Here's one big red flag because the fake agents or the inexperienced agents, the agents who are no good, they can't live on 15% of the contracts they bring in. <laughs> and so they have to find the money somewhere else. So they start coming up with things to sell you. Whereas the good ones are making plenty of money on the 15%. And you're like, why should I give 15% to a literary agent? Well, of a watermelon is more than 100% of a grape. It's not about the percentage. (laughs) It's about the total amount of money. And it's about the amount of respect that you get from the publisher, which is really important. Because if they push you around on things that are important to you and you don't have a way to push back, that can really hurt the rest of your career beyond just that one book. Yes, you only have that one chance to make that first sale, that first impression. And One of the things that's hard if you're a new author is there have been times where I've been placing authors in smaller publishing houses for their step in to the industry. That's great. And it's so much fun. But as that first time author in a smaller house, there's a heavier burden to sell out your advance so that you look attractive the next time to a bigger publisher. In terms of where to find an agent, the place I would recommend is either the Writer's Market, which is a book that sells millions of copies every year. And it's basically a phone book of the legit agents. There's also the Christian Writer's Market Guide. And you'll sometimes find these in other niches. There's like, I think, the Poets Writer's Market Guide. In the ones that have a paper printing, I, I feel like you can trust those. Because <laughs> you can check the reviews on Amazon, see that they have a good reputation. But other than the like the classic source of like going to conferences and the market guides, are there any other good places to look for a literary agent? Yeah, one of the places that I have been using, because I'm both a nonfiction and a fiction writer, personally. And so sometimes agents won't do both. So I am looking for a fiction literary agent. And Writer's Digest has a weekly feature that has the new and upcoming or new and notable agents. And that's just a really great way to go about it because, you know, they're fresh, they're hungry, (laughs) and they want to represent people because they don't have anyone on their list. So that's a really good place to go. And then I think the best place, of course, is a writer's conference because a relationship with an agent is really a personal relationship. And I don't want to sign someone I don't like. (laughs) So it's really helpful. I mean, I've definitely been queried and I have acquired clients through querying, but for the most part, it's through a friend of a friend or I've met them face to face at a conference and they're not weird or creepy. So I like them. A lot of it is relationships. And I would say probably the number one place most agents get their clients is from their 
existing clients. Yes. So building your personal network of author friends is really key. And again, you do that at a writer's conference. So don't go to a writer's conference and be a jerk to all the other authors and a suck up to all the agents. <laughs> be a nice person to everyone because it may be that author that you make friends with ends up introducing you to her agent who wasn't even at the conference. Yeah, I've got this whole contingent of North Carolina writers because they're all connected to one another and they're like friends with each other and they're awesome. I'm so excited about them. So at what point should somebody start looking for an agent? When do you know you're ready to start querying and pitching agents? In the fiction realm, it would be if you have obviously if you've finished your novel and you have some sort of platform presence, particularly a newsletter distribution list. You've got presence on most of the platforms that are out there. You've had your work critically acclaimed, or in other words, you've had a professional, not your mom, read it, and they have offered you editorial feedback and you've heeded it. And someone in the publishing industry has said, this is actually publishable. Then you know you're ready in terms of fiction. Uh, and it doesn't hurt in fact, it helps. I have it on my Writer Help Etsy shop to write a proposal for fiction. It will make you stand out um, above anybody else that's uh, querying. Most people in fiction will just say, here's the synopsis, and this is how many words it is, and this is the log line about it. But if you have a proposal as well, it will put you to the top of the slush pile. And then in nonfiction, you have to have a creative, amazing idea that is unique but not so unique that it's obscure. And typically, and this is where people get mad at me, but typically houses are looking for at least 50,000 followers across all platforms. So if you have a 50,000 member email list, you're in. And I'm personally, I feel like that's the best thing that you can do as an email list. But if you have like 20,000 on Instagram and 10,000 on Twitter and 20,000 on Facebook, then that will work as well. And if you're not in those places yet, and I've definitely acquired clients that have lower numbers than that, but it's because their book was completely standing out as amazing and had to be in the market and there were fights for them. So I have that like gut instinct about a really great project. But really, even with fiction, and this was really interesting, when I was pitching some children's lit to a couple houses, great concept, high concept, really good stuff, the publishers came back with, well, she only has 20,000 Instagram followers on fiction. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I, so I've asked the editors about that. And they said, well, we at least want them on all the platforms. And if they can get some numbers, then that would be great. So even in fiction, they are looking at those numbers and they don't want a hermit who has no presence anywhere. I think this is particularly true in the Christian market. It's true in the secular market, but it's particularly true in the Christian market because they need to know that you resonate with other Christians because the mm -hmm. publishers aren't very good at predicting that because many of the people in the publishing companies aren't Christians themselves. <laughs> They're not church. I know, right? <laughs> so they don't have a sense of what their market wants themselves. And so they need the market to show what they're wanting. Whereas in the secular market, the editors are more kind of acquiring the kinds of books that they would want to read and they trust their own instincts a little bit more, at least in, in my experience. But it is true, especially nonfiction. You have to have already built up your fame. The book's not what's going to make you famous. And you can't really social media your way to fame. If you want to get 50,000 Instagram followers, you don't 
do that by being good at Instagram. You do that at being good at something else and mentioning your Instagram presence there. <laughs> Where you, you know, you, you're on TV and people want to message you on Instagram after or you're on stage somewhere or you're on a podcast. You can occasionally get there with, with short video, but I don't see it very often that somebody Instagrams their way into fame. Usually they fame their way into Instagram or really any other social network. The days of iJustine being famous for being famous because she was the first one on Twitter. Those days went away about 15 years ago. Yeah. And please don't buy followers, just FYI, because publishers are looking at your engagement numbers. They've gotten burned. And so if you bought 100,000 followers on Instagram and you have 0.008 engagement, it means that you bought a bunch of robots and publishers will not be impressed with it. And you will just look bad. So you have to organically grow your presence, which then maddens everyone because it's like, how do I do that? It's hard. It takes work. It takes time. And what it really involves is knowing the heck out of your audience and blessing the heck out of them. The more I speak to my audience on Instagram and just try to wow them and love them and help them and enable them and empower them, the more my platform grows. And so it's slow, but it's real. And I've got great engagement. So let's talk a little bit about genres, because this is a big element. Most agents focus on like specific genres. Like if they do fiction, maybe they only do science fiction or they only do Mm -hmm. romance. Why is that? And is that important? Is it better to go with a specialist or a generalist when it comes with a literary agent? I think it does help if you go with a specialist, especially in fiction, because they can know the back Like I know 0%, just talking to you, I know like 1%, but I know 0% about science fiction. I could never represent it. I would be terrible at it because it's not something I read. And other than a couple of Star Wars slash Lord of the Rings things, I just, and not that Lord of the Rings is sci-fi, it's fantasy, but you know what I'm saying? So yes, it really does help to have someone get you and understand your genre. In terms of nonfiction, I have a really wide variety of different kinds of people from a magician to someone writing about grief. And it that I don't think is really, that really matters. What really matters in nonfiction is if your agent is deeply connected to your project and is just like jumping up and down. And so for me, when I I just placed a project this week and I literally was jumping up and down. I was so excited because I was so excited about the book. I was so excited about my client. I could not wait to give him a call. (laughs) And so it's really that kind of passion excitement thing that you want to look for. You can't sell a product you don't believe in. This is classic sales 101. And So for an agent to sell your book to a publisher, the more they believe in your book, the more contagious that belief is. And the more the publisher trusts that agent, the more effective they are at selling. They're like, this is the next best, biggest thing. If that agent just sold the publisher the last biggest thing, (laughs) then they're like, okay, we're listening. And so that's another thing to keep in mind. So there's this kind of trade-off. New agents are easier to get, but they have less of a track record with publishers, Mm -hmm. whereas established agents have that track record, but it's harder to get because you're having to muscle other people out. Let's talk about the actual getting of the agent. So I found two or three agents that I want to pitch. I found them in the market guide or I met them at a conference. So now what do I do? Do I call them up on the phone and beg? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, please no. (laughs) 
every agency usually has a portal that you can put your query in. Mary Demuth Literary does as well. I'll just share mine as query at marydemuthliterary.com. And that goes into the query slush pile. And you want to write a really great, compelling informational query letter. And what I mean by that is my assistant receives them first. And the first question I'm asking, I typically don't agent fiction. I do have a couple authors, but for the most part, I am doing, my specialty is nonfiction. So I want to know what your numbers are up front. I don't want to have to dig through your proposal to try to figure it out. She doesn't want to have to do that either. I have to pay her to do that. So in your query letter, just be honest and say what it is. And then give me a really compelling couple sentences about what your book is about. One of the things that I just sent to a publisher today, so I pitched to 16 publishing houses on behalf of one of my clients, and she had in her proposal um, all these quotes from people that said, I wish there was a book like this out there. I would buy five for my friends and 20 for my family. And it, it's a really, truly unique topic that is not written about, and I've already gotten positive feedback from publishers about it. But having those like little testimonies in your query letter, anything that's social proof that shows that there is a need for this is super helpful. If you want to learn more about social proof, I have a whole episode on it (laughs) that will walk you through how to grow and demonstrate social proof. It's one of our popular marketing psychology episodes. And we'll have a link to it in the show notes of this episode because Mary's exactly right. And it's not just her looking for social proof. Everybody is looking for evidence that your book is good. Because I will say, when I was an agent, my very first day as an agent, I got two pitches. It hadn't been announced yet. I don't know how those people, I think they just found me (laughs) on the guidelines page of the agency I was with. And so I sent them back both, you know, custom written rejection letters. But within a week, especially once it was officially announced, I'm getting dozens of proposals. Sometimes I get you know, 20, 30 pitches in a day, it felt like. So I didn't have time to write every single one of those people a custom rejection letter. (laughs) And so what I did was I created a boilerplate. I had nice no, no, heck no. no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I started creating, because a lot of people, in fact, probably the biggest reason I reject people is that people were a bad fit. They didn't bother to read what kind of um, proposal I was looking for. And every single agent has on their website what they're looking for. And you can save yourself a lot of wasted time by looking through that and being like, oh, they don't represent nonfiction. They're not going to be interested in my nonfiction book. Or, oh, this author doesn't represent memoir. My memoir is not going to be any good. Instead of trying to be the one exception, like, I know you don't do fiction, but my novel's really good. Can you represent me? Don't be that guy. (laughs) They're not going to make an exception for you. And you're just wasting your time and, and their time. And so this is one of the nice things about the market guides. Often it will have a little blurb by the agent, what they're looking for. But their website often has even more information, what they're looking for. And Every agency has some process of applying. It's a little bit different for each one. Some like paper, some don't like paper. Some have a form that you fill out. Some have an email address that you email. And if you just do a little bit of effort to read that form and kind of adapt your proposal to the format that they're looking for, that's often all it takes to get past the first screener. (laughs) Because a lot of agents are like Mary, where they have somebody who checks the proposal and kicks back rejections. So it's not even Mary doing the rejections initially. And I'm guessing your assistant probably kicks back over half of the proposals that come into the slush pile before you ever even see it. 
Exactly. Almost, yes. <laughs> At least half, probably 65%. So read the guidelines page. <laughs> and just because you read the guidelines for the last 10 agents and they all wanted it a certain way, that doesn't mean the 11th agent is going to want it that same a certain way. So I know you still look at social media numbers and you're pitching to the kinds of publishers who are looking at social media numbers. And, and in terms of social media, it's 50,000. Is that the number that you're seeing for email lists? Because the number I was seeing was closer to 10,000, 15,000 for email lists. Yeah. So the whole number, the whole 50 has the email list in there. So yeah, most people's email lists are, are like a thousand or something, but if you can get above 10,000, it's really helpful. Yeah. And the of the numbers, the most impressive number is the email list because you could have yes. a ton of social media followers. But if you can't convince them to get on your email list, you're not going to be able to convince them to buy your book. And savvy publishers know that. The one number that's possibly they'll buy is a podcast subscription because mm -hmm. that's kind of like an email subscription where your episodes are going to go to them automatically. But all of the social networks now put an algorithm in between the creators and the content consumers. And so you can't guarantee that your marketing pitch will actually get through that algorithm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you can be getting great engagement on your encouraging Bible verses, but your, hey, buy my book post may not appear. What advice do you have for figuring out if somebody is a good fit? If, the, if, this, is a, if this literary agent is a good fit for you? Because somebody could be a good agent, right? They're an honest person and they're smart and they've sold a lot of books, but they may not be a good fit for your book. And as somebody who's had multiple agents <laughs> and <laughs> multiple clients, what are some red flags to look at in terms of, oh, this person may not be a good fit for me? From the agent side to the author, for me, it's if I have a high-maintenance author who needs their hand held all the time. So I'm always looking for self-starters. I'll give you an example of a self-starter. I had a client that I was pitching a book to a major house and pitching it all over the place. And the one of the editors, who's a friend of mine, emailed back and he said, I just don't feel like that's the book that person wants to write. And I said, you know, I think you're right, but it's more memoirish. So we've tried this other way. And he said, well, can you send me the other? So my client in a week turned around a new proposal in the first three chapters. We sent it to the publisher and that sold. And so that's the kind of client I'm looking for. I'm not going to write your proposal for you. I will hold your hand if you're sad because you got rejected. I will absolutely do that, but I'm not going to <laughs> write your book for you. And then in terms of you to the agent, I think it is a matter of what your expectations are and preferences. So personally, I will always respond to all my email address. I'm the opposite of Thomas that way. I am an email fiend. And if you need to have in an agent someone who responds quickly, then that's a conversation that you want to have with your agent right away. And I've had both kinds. I've had kinds that don't respond and you're like, did they even get my email? And then ones that are immediate in that response. I think, you know, kind of the more psychological way, and this is one of the agents that I've had that was, I had to go away from, was just not getting me, just didn't understand my heart, didn't understand my work ethic, and how as a working writer, I need to be writing two or three books a year to make a living. And so if I always felt like I was pushing against or, you know, forcing my agent to 
pitch books. It was just exhausting. So all those things are all in a big sandwich of what you want, but you need to define your expectations, but also remember that a literary agent makes money when they place a project. So they don't have a lot of time to nurture new authors who aren't productive because I'll make zero money and spend 25 hours with you. And if you still haven't created a proposal, then I just can't stay representing you. Because you need them to be publishable and to yeah. get ready to be publishable, which is one of the reasons why listening to podcasts like this one, going through courses, reading books, and doing the work is what helps make you more attractive to agents. And when it comes to agents being attractive to you, in some ways, it's kind of like looking for a spouse, right? It's like, I remember back when I was dating, one of the rejections I got was like, um, there's somebody out there who's a better fit for you than I am, <laughs> which is a really nice rejection. And it was true, right? Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and now I'm, I'm very happily married. And this is why I think going to conferences is useful if you want to be traditionally published, because you can tell a lot about somebody meeting them in person that is harder to tell just looking at their public persona and mm-hmm. reading their website. You don't really get a feel for the person. And this is a long-term relationship. And to give you an idea, when you sell a client's book, you are forever the representative of that book. So they may fire you as their agent or you may fire them as your client. But 75 years after the author dies, your heirs and their heirs are still splitting the money Mm -hmm. (laughs) for that one book. So it's a very long relationship. In fact, it's longer than a marriage because it goes 75 years past death. (laughs) Marriages end on the death (laughs) of either party, whereas a literary agent relationship financially lasts 75 years past the death of the author, potentially, right? Most books aren't commercially viable that long, but it could last that long. So you want to make sure you're picking somebody whose financial heirs would get along with your financial heirs. (laughs) (laughs) What are some mistakes that you see people make when pitching and trying to get an agent? Writing the wrong name, (laughs) misspellings or grammatical errors in a query letter will automatically get you thrown away. Not doing your homework, like Thomas said, not realizing that I don't take sci-fi fantasy. I'm going to say no. It's just an automatic no, no matter how great you are and how awesome it is. I think not sharing honestly what your numbers are. And another one is not having done your homework on the industry. I love it when I get a query from someone who knows the industry and I can tell. Like I just signed a client about a week ago who she knew the industry like the back of her hand. And she's like, I know about this and I know about that. And this is why my email list is at 25,000. And this is what I've done to build it. And this is my open rate. I mean, just she just knew. Those kinds of people are golden. And if you can prove that you know what you're talking about and you understand and you don't need someone to educate you on the publishing industry. It's a huge win for me. Yes. Listen to podcasts on publishing, read books on publishing. (laughs) Really, like you don't realize how much you're learning when you listen and and realize it's kind of a commercial for the thing you're already listening to. But it really does make a difference as you become fluent because it makes you a lot easier to work with and it helps you avoid really simple pitfalls. Even just Knowing the vocabulary so the agent can have an efficient conversation with you without having to explain all the different publishing terms. The less time an agent has to put in to getting your proposal ready, the more of a risk they're willing to take, right? Because if if you have two clients and one, an hour's worth of feedback and her proposal's good to go and somebody else, you know, like, oh, with 10 hours, I could get this proposal back in shape. That 10-hour one's 
more likely to get rejected because it's more work and more risk for you. Because just because the proposal's in shape doesn't mean it's going to for sure get a contract. Because that's the thing. Getting a literary agent doesn't mean that you've got a book contract. <laughs> Agents only sell a percentage of the books that they acquire. And that percentage varies by the agent and how choosy they are. But it's not a for sure. No agent can guarantee that you'll get a contract. And any agent who mm-hmm. does is probably going to try to sell you to a hybrid publisher yep. who will want you to pay money. So going back to the legitimate agents, legitimate agents don't charge you money and they don't try to sell you or get you to sign with a publisher who will charge you money. The money should only be flowing towards you, never away mm-hmm. from you. And if it's ever flowing away from you, be concerned because sometimes agents are on the take for shady publishing companies. And also just an, another caution, please don't say that this book is like God's gift to the human race and that it's guaranteed to be a New York Times bestseller. Those ob- automatically go into the slush pile as well. Well said. MaryDemuthLiterary.com is the website. We'll have a link to it if you want to learn more about Mary DeMuth. We also, for those of you who are patrons and you missed it, we had a pitch practice with Mary, where patrons got on and practiced their pitches, which was uh, great fun. We had great feedback from the folks who came to that. So we're probably going to do that twice a year with different agents or different professionals. So if you missed your chance to pitch your book and want it again, it'll come up every six months or so. I'll bring on somebody and you get a chance to pitch your book. And Mary DeMuth, thank you so much for joining us today on the Novel Marketing Podcast. My pleasure. If you heard Mary talking about the social media numbers and the email list numbers that publishers are looking for and that freaked you out because you're not there yet, don't worry. I have a course. It's called Obscure No More. It is my ultimate course to help you build a platform that will either, if you're trying to be traditionally published, appeal to traditional publishers, or if you're wanting to go indie, it will allow you to independently publish successfully. In that course, I walk you through a strategy to help you build a platform that plays to your strengths while avoiding your weaknesses. I talk about how to develop your author brand, how to build an email list, and more. And by more, I mean it has bundled into it almost every course that I have. Courses on podcasting, courses on email list growth, courses on blogging. We talk about search engine optimization. If you've ever wanted to pick my brain, if you want more of my help, this course is the ultimate guide to help you get there. You can find out more about my course, Obscure No More, at authormedia.com slash courses. Our featured patron today is Winnie Frolic, author of Death at Bayard Lodge. When district nurse Mary Gray visits the beautiful Lake District, she's hoping for a relaxing outing. But from the very start, she finds herself pulled into a web of intrigue, resentments, and deceit when she finds a dead body on her lawn. With no shortage of suspects, she calls on private detective Franz Schaefer to come down to Bayard Lodge to help solve the case. But as they unearth buried secrets and hidden agendas, they find themselves are also at risk. Winnie Frolic, thank you so much for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Your support and other patrons like you is what helps keep this podcast on the air. 
The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our guest today is literary agent Mary DeMuth. Our producer is Lori Christine. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. The blog post version is crafted by Shauna Lettler. And if you want to read that blog version of this episode, including links to everything we talked about today, you can find it at authormedia.com slash 344. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host, saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.